And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. And as you're taking a seat, the kids through fourth grade, you guys are dismissed to your classes. And you could turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40. And as you're turning, I'll give you a couple seconds and then we're going to pray and ask God's blessing upon our time here. All right, let's look to the Lord in prayer. Dear Holy Father, may we be people of your word. May we be people who love to hear your truth, to love to hear what you have to say, to love how your word speaks into every life, into every culture. May we not just be hearers of the word, but doers as well. Give us wisdom to understand what it is to behold you in all of your fullness, in all of your glory. In your son's name we pray, amen. And I would say that is my prayer for us today, that we would hear uh, what God has to say f- for us and from this word here. It's, it reminds me of a, uh, an old pastor once said to his congregation before he started a sermon that it is my job to preach today and it's your job to listen. If you get done your job before I get done my job, please let me know. And I pray that that's not the case because from this text there is so much to mine out and we will not be able to get through um, everything there is to depth the depth of this passage, but I pray that uh, we, this would just spark interest in you to dive into this passage more and look in, in the beauty of it all throughout the week. With that being said, we live in a day and age that obviously, if you haven't noticed yet, we're turning the page on another year. Um, if any of you growing up, even in my own growing up years, I thought there was no way we would see 2020, you know, and that's not even possible, you know, we should be flying in cars by now and all these other things like that, that never happened, but it is clear that we live in a world that is in constant change and time is marching on and is marching on relentlessly, no matter what you can do to stop it. It almost reminds me of one of those armies that are marching in beat, just moving as a force and there's nothing you can do to stop it no matter how hard you try. We live in a world of constant change. Everything is changing. The political landscape is changing. The stock market goes up so it can go back down. Morality is changing. Society is changing. Time is marching on, ready or not, here it comes. Yet what is not changing? Besides the typical death and taxes, which we'll expect, but I would even say death and taxes are changing because the death rate goes up sometimes, and taxes seem to always go up, but they're changing as well. But is there anything that doesn't change? Is there any anchor? Is there anything that no matter what is going around us does not change? With that question ringing in your mind, I want to give you a little context to why I ask you to turn to Isaiah chapter 40. Because anyone who is just reading your Bible understand that there's 39 chapters that come before Isaiah 40, and you don't understand what's happening in Isaiah 40 until you get the context of where we're going. And so what I'm actually going to do is I'm not going to give you a whole lengthy context, 1 through 38. We're just going to stop in chapter 39, and I'll give you what's happening in there for you to get an idea of where we're going. So King Hezekiah is on the throne. While he's on the throne, remember the two tribes of Israel, we have the northern tribe and the southern tribe. The northern tribe gets wiped out by the Assyrians for their disobedience. The southern tribe is still in play, they're still moving on, but they're not wiped out. King Hezekiah hears about this little upstart nation called the Chaldeans or the Babylonians off by the Persian Gulf, and they send ambassadors to Jerusalem. And now like any king, it just is anybody would, they want to show off their wealth. 
And so King Hezekiah shows off his wealth to this small, puny little nation called the Babylonians, and he shows them everything they have. Now, the prophet Isaiah, which the book is named after, comes and stands before King Hezekiah and says, the sin is that you have done and the sin of Jerusalem is great and you will be punished. Your sons and your daughters will be taken away. And King Hezekiah does a sigh of relief and says at the end of the chapter, at least in my day and age, there'll be peace. And we get a pause now. Now, between chapter 39 and 40, some time has gone on. Now, there are going to be three different waves of Babylonian attack on the nation of Israel. The first wave comes in and takes down. The youth takes back. We don't know when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel were taken, whether it was the first or the second, but this could have been the time that they get taken in one of these Babylonian. We come in, and then Nebuchadnezzar sets up a puppet king to rule, and then there's going to be another wave, and then one last final wave, and Nebuchadnezzar says, we've had enough, and he takes everybody off. And the exile officially begins. But in between those waves, Isaiah 40 is penned. So what I want you to think about is think about an ocean where one massive wave has come and rocked your world and knocked you down and you are standing back up and another wave of of destruction is coming at you and it's only a matter of time before that wave hits and behind that wave you can see another wave coming. All right, and so you're literally sitting here going, I'm going to take a deep breath and just hope for the best as I go down under again, and Isaiah 40 is penned into that type of scenario. So with this being said, in the middle of all of this passage here, God is going to speak. And this passage is going to describe for us the unchanging nature and the character of God. Just as God interacted with the nation of Israel, so he acts towards us today. This is the same God. That's why we see the title of today's sermon is When God Speaks. Not if God speaks. He is always speaking. The question is many times are you listening? But he is always speaking. As the famous book says, we have a God and he is not silent. And the question that is in front of us is, when God speaks in the midst of judgment, what does he say to his people? So let's look at verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Now let's wait, wait a minute. What was the mood? Destruction and death, and you can literally still smell the burning homes. And the, the call of comfort is carried out. And God, the one who's bringing the punishment, is saying, comfort, comfort them. And you're going, wait a minute, that sounds a little unique, that in the middle of this judgment that is carrying out a just judgment that's being carried out on the nation of Israel for their sin, comfort is being offered. The question is, is this some hollow, positive thinking that he's just trying to say, you know, like close your eyes and just say something, you know, just forget the world? No, this is not a hollow, positive thinking. God is going to give his people reasons to be comforted. He doesn't just say, hey, feel comfort. I'll talk to you later. The text goes on and answers, how can this be? He says in verse 2, Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. You go, wait a minute, her warfare has ended? No, 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 Tim, you've been just telling me that it's coming again, and I'm going to say, yes, it is coming again. There is more warfare. But what God is saying here is their warfare is ended. And in the middle of this, 
we see in the middle of this judgment carried out, we're seeing hope. And I want to show you where we see this also in the, in the Bible as well, which is a very interesting thing. So let's go back to the garden. Remember in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned, right? And God is, comes to them and says, Adam, where are you? And he lies and all these other things, blaming his wife and all these other things that are going on. And God is basically dulling out the consequences. You know, Eve, here's yours. Adam, here's yours. And even before the weight of that sin is felt, before they've been kicked out of the garden, before Eve has a child and feels the pain of that, before Adam has even pulled a weed, God gives hope and he says, Eve, one of your kids is going to be the answer. Before the consequence has even been felt, there is hope. And just to show you where we see this is even this being played out on the cross. Because we already know the cross is salvation. And we know that before the judgment has even been passed out. And when you start looking at the way God does things, he doesn't leave us without hope. That even though our sin has consequences, there is still hope that is given. And so what is the hope that is given? How can this be? So there's a prophetic voice that cries out in verse 3. A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. Remember, desolate land... Building still burning, places still going on, destruction around us. And what do we hear? The cry? God is coming. Now, back then, they did not have a department of transportation that made sure the roads were clear. So whenever a king would come through, the people of the town would go out and clear the way, knock the trees that had fallen down, make the rough places flat because the king is coming. We don't really do that here, but I was told that in England, when the queen goes through towns, there are certain towns that literally only paint the side that she's driving through of the homes, so they don't have to worry about having to do it all, and you can see it to this day. But what we have here is saying, listen, God is coming. It's the same call that John the Baptist does, which is later fulfilled, which we don't have the time to talk about that whole beauty of that fulfillment at the moment. But what we see here is God is coming, prepare the way. And how do we know that God is coming? Because right now it looks like another wave of destruction is coming. How do we know that God is coming? What is the promise? What is the stamp? What is the here, I told you so, this is coming? Verse 5, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The stamp. The stamp of proof that all these promises are going to come true for the nation of Israel was because who said it? God had said it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God has spoken. Nothing more is needed. So into the darkness, a wavering light of God has spoken shines forth. Nothing more needs to be added. Nothing more needs to be said. God said it. Now, which is interesting right now, if you are following any of the, um, a little bit more of the pop culture in the world, uh, once Disney took over Star Wars and has decided now that there's 7,000 more Star Wars that need to be made, in one of the Star Wars things that they had, this concept is kind of seen. There's a character that when there's confusion and frustration to something that he has said, he has now been famous of saying this one line. So he says to a group of guys, you need to do this, and they argue, and he just says, I have spoken, and he walks away. 
And my kids, when I were watching this, they said, hey, daddy, you should try that sometimes with us when we're arguing, you know, and just say, dad has spoken and walk away. Real, real quick, I would not try that with your spouse, all right? That will probably not go too well. I have spoken. But why does that not work? Even though on a humorous level, why does that not work? Because we don't have the authority that God has. When God says it, it's going to happen. You can take that to the bank. You know that it's going to happen. Which is very interesting, though. What we see next, this prophetic voice is going to cry out next, and it's going to be a cry of all of humanity. We see this in verse 6. A voice says cry, and the question is, what shall I cry? What needs to be cried out during this time? What more needs to be said? Well, all flesh is grass, and all of its beauty is, is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades. Notice what the cry is. The cry isn't, hey, look to yourself. Figure this out on your own. The cry is, you guys are like grass. Your life is like a flower that is here for a moment and gone. And we're, that's supposed to bring some type of a comfort, some type of an understanding. How is that to bring comfort? It's because to tell us who we are. It's to remind you who you are. What gives Israel confidence that the promises of God will happen? It's not Israel's ability, but the unchanging nature and character of God and his word. Because think about this for a second. All flesh is like grass and the flower of the field. When the wind blows upon it, that is God's breath, they die. So we see the giver of life and also we see the one who takes life in control of life. And we see this change going on. We see this because there's one thing constant on the scene of humanity. There is one thing that is continually passing off the scene every day. It is not God. It is you and I. And you and I will come and you and I will go, but God's word doesn't change. And how do we know that? Verse 8 says, In contrast to the grass and the flowers, but the word of God will stand forever. Many attacks on the word of God and his people have come and gone, but God's word stands the test of time forever. Every age, every age, the church is continually being pressured to take the word of God and try to manipulate it to fit the cultural thinking at that time. All you have to do is take a look at history and see, well, that was popular then. How do we make the word of God fit that? And how do we do this? But we are not at liberty to do that. Because God's word stands forever. To give you an example of this, the culture and its way of thinking have come and have gone. They are like the grass and the flower of the field. They are here for a moment and they fade, but God's word lasts forever. Truth is cr truth. The culture may not like the truth, but we don't change the truth of God's word to fit the culture. Nor can we as Christians decide what we want to pick and choose about Christianity and still call ourselves Christians. It's either we accept all that God has said or we reject it. It was interesting that not too long ago I was in my office with someone and this, this gentleman was trying to tell me why he was doing something and I said, do you understand God's word directly speaks against that? And he said, well, you, well that's the part I don't really like. And so I don't really follow that part, but I follow this part. And I said, well, th 
I, I guess in a way, you know, you're accountable to God, but you can't call yourself a Christian and not follow what Christ said, all right? You're just not a Christian. And you have to ask yourself, is what you're saying backing up to anything you believe? Because we are not, a, we are not able in any way, shape, or form, or given the ability to take the Word of God and make it say what we want it to say. The Bible is not a book full of ideas and opinions and principles waiting for our consideration. Everything God's Word says carries authority because of who authored it. That is why all believers must embrace and submit to the authority of Scripture. Dr. Albert Moeller once said, Christ did not establish His church upon vague doctrine, but rather upon very clear Truth claims. The Christian responsibility is not to go therefore and invent some faith for some new age, but rather to hold fast to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. In a way, we are living in a day where those who are going to take God's word and twist it and manipulate it to fit whatever is culturally acceptable, we live in a day where it's time I think it's past time to say, you're not of us. Because if you don't believe what God's word says, and you're not going to follow it, don't call yourself a follower of Christ. And you know what? It's always going to be unpopular. You understand that? That way of thinking is not going to win friends and influence people. But it will win true followers of Christ. Because the Bible is very clear that the foolish things of this world will confound the wise. And we look at these things and we say, Lord, give us wisdom to understand how we are to live our lives according to your word at this time. Because God will keep his word and it does not change. And I would say that is why the rest of this text continues on. That's why in verse 9 we see it develop even more. And that is why we can have confidence. That's why the Israelites could have confidence that comfort will come. Because listen to what verse 9 says. Because verse 9 does not make sense if you literally lost your child... Maybe your husband was killed in battle, right? And all of a sudden you're supposed to say this, get up on a high mountain? All right, if we were at war, most of us, the high mountain is the spot where you get picked off. Where do you want to run when there's a war? To a cave. And what is God saying to them? Get up on a high mountain. O Zion, herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up. Notice it says, fear not. Why? Because when the waves of destruction are coming at you, there's a good chance you might fear. But he's saying, no, don't be afraid. Say to the cities of Judah. Now remember, when a nation comes in, Jerusalem, because it's got bigger walls than all the cities of Judah, the cities of Judah are easy picking until you get to Jerusalem. You following that? So we're supposed to say to all the cities of Judah, what? Behold your God. And right now, they're looking and going, it looks like behold Babylon. And he's saying, no, behold your God. Look at the good news you have coming. How do we know that this news is good? Because it's from God and God himself. But who are the ones that be heralding this news? Remember, the strong of the land have been taken away. What we have left in the land are poor and weak and your second tier that are left that they didn't want the first time. And these are the ones, these remnant that are going to be crying out the good news that God is coming. Behold, he is coming. 
And when he comes, he is coming to bring the glory of his might and the glory of his power. We see this in Isaiah 35, that there's a time here that we see in Isaiah 35 that an old, and it was an old song that my parents who growing up in the, they became Christians in the 70s. And so as when your parents become Christians in the 70s, they start singing songs that Christian people sang in the 70s, and they teach them to their kids who were growing up in the 80s. All right, and there was a song that my parents taught us as little kids out of Isaiah 35. It says, Therefore the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion, and everlasting joy shall be upon their head. And then you repeat it a couple more times. I can't remember how much the rest of it goes, but if any of you want to sing it afterwards, I guess you can. But it was a song that we were singing about, this is a day that is coming, and it's as good as done, but what do we still have to go through? The exile. We still have to be removed from the land, and there will come a day. And when the exile came back, there was singing, but it wasn't fulfilled completely. It was a partial fulfillment of that beautiful song that was being sung. And yet one day that will be fulfilled when all of the followers of Christ come to Zion and are singing with joy the praises of God. And we long for that day. But in the midst of this song that is going to be sung, Notice how the Lord is coming in verse 10. Behold, the Lord comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. How is he coming? As a shepherd. But what is happening in front of them? Turmoil and struggle, and heartache. And what do we see the character of God coming in here? As a shepherd that is shepherding his people, that is taking care of them in the midst of their own consequences of their own sin. He's taking care of them. You can see the messianic tones dripping from these passages. We're talking about, even in chapter 3, we see John the Baptist being the fulfillment of some of these things. We see this shepherd that is going to come as Christ comes as a shepherd to his people. We see all of these things and finding their fulfillment right then, but yet in Christ, an even greater fulfillment when Christ returns again. But we're left with this question, behold your God, and what is this God going to be like? And how is he going to act? That's why we see this in our point number four. Behold your God. What, when we behold him, what are we beholding him as? God is God and there is no one like him. We have to remember that. We also have to remember, too, that when the Bible asks a rhetorical question, the answer is supposed to be obvious. Like to give you an example, this happens in our family. When one of our kids is drinking grape juice and they sit down on a white chair, I say something like this, do you really think that that's the best idea to be drinking grape juice on a white chair? Now, I'm not doing that because I want to get in a dialogue with them. The answer to that is obvious. It should be what? No. All right? So go do that. This isn't a, you know, Dad, I don't really know. No, it's, a, it's obvious. We see this in Romans chapter 6, one of the famous parts where Paul says, shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? And the answer is no. All right? It, it goes without saying. And so what we're going to see here is these rhetorical questions being asked, and the answer should leap off the page as an obvious statement. But they're being asked about God. Let's start here in verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Now, I'm going to stop there. Because this is one of my favorite verses, especially when we were uh, growing up as 
with our kids um, down in, at the shore in New Jersey, and I would go over by the water's edge in the big ocean that was down there and say, you want to see how big daddy is? All right, watch this. And I would scoop some water out of the hollow of my hand, and I would say to my kids, now watch the water level drop in the ocean. And they just look at me like, that's really a, that didn't do anything, daddy. I don't know what you're talking about. And I would say, what does God do? He literally measures the, the ocean water in the hollow of his hand. And then we look up at the stars. And before you know it, we look up at the stars and what do we see? He marked off the heavens with a span. He goes on to say, and weighed the mountains in the scale and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? And the answer to all of those is no one. No one had to teach God anything because his very nature, he is all wise and all knowing. But it's interesting now. We just paused there and looked at God, and now God's going to take a moment and look at us. So we see here in verse 15 Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. Now, when I, even when I think of this, it reminds me of a story. So one time when I was a little kid, I was out and I was. In Pennsylvania, we burn the trash. And so I was burning the trash, and my curiosity overcame me. I went over to a piece of dry field that we had. We lived on about a 75-acre poultry farm, and I decided that in my brilliance, I was going to start just a little patch and just burn off some of the dried grass. For some reason, you know the wind that the Lord used to part the Red Sea? That happened again at the moment that my match went to that, because the grass just went, woof. All right, and it is burning all over the place. And in a typical Tim fireman safety, I'm doing one of these, right? And so I yell to my brother, hey, Mark, bring water. He runs over and gets a bucket. And by the time he runs out, there's literally this much water. And I go like that and went, wow, that was pointless. All right, and I go, yo, go get the hose. And he goes, I don't know where the hose is. And make a long story short, I can tell you what happened at the end. But we look at this thing and go, he brought out a drop in a bucket, And what value was that drop that he gave me for my task? No value at all. And we look and we see that the nations are like a drop in a bucket. And second, are counted as dust on the scales. Dust on the scales is what the nations are counted. Now, if you've ever gone to whether it's the, whether you've been shopping the pig or anything else like that, and you go to the deli section, right, and you buy something from the deli and they, and they stick it on there, I have never seen anyone, when they put the, the deli thing on the, um, the scale there, has anyone ever gone, whoa, 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 you're going to overcharge me and go, whoo, whoo. all right, now I'm going to get my money's worth. No, because why do we not wipe the dust off a scale? Because it doesn't change the weight, because literally dust is pointless in that, other than to be wiped off and discarded. He says, we are counted as dust on the scale, meaning we don't even weigh up to anything. Behold, he takes up the coastline like fine dust. Leaven it would not be sufficient for fuel, nor its beast enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Now, I want to pause here for a second. So we started off by being a drop in a bucket, Right, And then we went down, the nations went down to what? Dust on a scale. And then just in case if you thought, hey, you know, you put dust in whatever, you might get a little bit of dirt. No, he's saying, what are nations? They are nothing. And then what did we do after that? 
Just in case if you didn't get the idea of nothing, he goes, that you are less than nothing, and then ends with emptiness. Okay, so, I believe here, without a doubt, this is speaking to us to say, wait a minute, Israel. Wait a minute, church. Wait a minute. Listen up here, people of God. Who are you compared to Almighty God? So when God says it, it will happen. Because anything in your strength is not going to change the fact that Almighty, powerful God is the one who's in control. When he says it, it will be done. Just even texts that are even coming to my own mind. Remember, what did Zechariah get in trouble for? Questioning. God said it. And he went, well, how can this be? And the angel said, I'm an angel who stands in the presence of God. It wasn't I'm an angel. It's I'm an angel who stands in the presence of God. When he says it, it's going to happen. And we can count on it. Let's continue to keep reading here, and let's look at what the nations do. Another rhetorical question. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? So how are we, if this is the God of the universe, the God who is in control of all of these nations, even the nation of Babylon, how, we, what, how do we even get our, our minds around him? So the question is, what about an idol? Does that get close to it? You see this, an idol? A craftsman casts it with casts it, and its goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that it will not rot. He seeks out skillful craftsmen and sets up an idol that will not move. Think about this for a moment. What are we trying to do? Think about the futility of idol making. So literally a call's got to go into the craftsman that's going to sound something like this. I, I need a God, and so... Um, and I need a God that's, um, that I want to worship. So uh, can you pick out a nice piece of wood? It needs to be really sturdy. It, it, don't get one of those pieces of wood that's rotting for this God. Um, and, and also, too, can you put some gold over it and then put some chains on it so it doesn't fall over in the middle of the night? And then when you send this God to me, now I'm going to bow down and say, you made me, and I'm going to worship you. And we all sit there and we laugh. And it, let's be honest, we look in there, that sounds kind of silly, all right, that you can do that. But remember, in the American culture, we have idols as well, and they are man-made. It's anything we place our faith and trust in other than God, anything we place our hope in. And so we ask ourselves, what does it look like when a culture turns away from God? What does it look like when a culture turns away from God in everything it does? Alistair Begg said that when a nation turns away from God, they do not turn to nothing, they turn to everything, and then everything becomes a God. It's interesting taking that quote and just looking the way that we've made gods out of everything in our culture. And so now the text is going to, again, ask some rhetorical questions. The reason why this text is so needed for the nation of Israel going through the time, the reason why this text is needed for all followers of Christ is because these are things we need to make sure we know. These are the things that will help us and anchor us. So let's look here in the text in verse 21. The question comes out again, do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the world that he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness? Scarcely 
Are they planted scarcely? Are they sown scarcely? Has their stem taken root on the earth? When he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. Interesting, isn't it? Remember, Babylon looks like the winning power of that day. Babylon looks like they are everything, you know, as you would call it, they've got all the power, they've got all the strength. There's no way anybody's going to take them down. It looks helpless. And what does God's word say? They're like grasshoppers to God. He who sits in throne looks down, and they're nothing to him. Scarcely did that nation come up, and scarcely did that nation go. Notice how many times the word scarcely is there. If you ever want to watch this play out, I'd love for you guys, if you ever take one of those things, they're usually on YouTube where they do like the history of a whole like Europe and they show you from the beginning that we know what nations came and went and it's so quick and fast and you're going, that was one nation there, here, there, there, there. The only time it pauses for a little bit is like the Roman Empire and then that collapsed and then you start going and you start realizing the nations come and nations go. But you know, when, when those nations are at power, we all think, boy, how could, this ha- how could this ever fall apart? You read your history books, you will see when Rome fell, it literally shaked the known world that could Rome actually fall? And the answer is, yep, because it's not God. God is the only thing that will last. This world will be destroyed. Nations will come, nations will go. Yet we also see here as well We see the beauty of the sovereignty of God. But if we're honest as Americans, we don't like the sovereignty of God. We don't like the understanding that he's in control because we want leaders that are very much like the leaders we have in our democracy. We want leaders that we can control. If we don't like them, we vote for somebody different. If we don't like what they're doing, I call them up and I say, hey, buddy, you do what I want you to do. And we want to have a manageable leader and God steps into the world and says, no, I am in control, and we go, we don't like that. That chafes against my way of thinking. And we see this happen because if we're honest, most of us will say, as well as myself, we sit here and go, I really want to hear from God. I really want him to lead in my life. And so I pray and I ask him, God, make it clear which way I'm to go. And then he makes it clear by saying no to something. But that was the way I thought it was supposed to go. And I go, well, that wasn't the answer I was expecting. And I get frustrated. And he said, you prayed for an answer and I gave you an answer. What are you doing now? You're chafing against that answer. But yet the sovereignty of God in these passages is meant for us. It's meant for the Israelite people and it's meant for us today to bring comfort and encouragement because God cannot be controlled by his enemies or by you. Now what Isaiah is going to do is spend some time retelling Israel, the greatness of God, and turning the corner on what they are to do. So let's look here in verse 27. There's a question that is being asked. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right hand is disregarded by my God, and my right is disregarded by my God. Why do you say this? The question that they're asking, Jacob and Israel is asking, where's God? All right, he told us judgment was going to come, but I think he's left. The verse before this, 
tells us that God is in control. Look at what verse 26 says. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, who brings out the host by number and calls them by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. So what's the answer to where is God? If he can call out the stars every single night by name, I don't know about you, but every single night when it's clear, Venus is the first one that pops up. And then another star comes, and then another star comes, and another star comes. And I've been around 39 winters. And guess what constellation has shown up every winter? Orion. And guess what? Every night I can stand there and look to the north of my house and see the Big Dipper and do the North Star that doesn't change. And as I can see there, I can watch it. I can literally, if I was on a ship, set the course of the ship by these stars that God says, come on out, come here. And he names them one by one and he understands where they're supposed to be and where they're going. And then we ask ourselves this question. So why do you, Jacob, why do you, Israel, ask? Uh, God doesn't know really what's going on here. Notice the answer is even in their name. When you hear the word Jacob, when you hear the word Israel, it's supposed to remind you of God's covenant-keeping promises to Jacob and Israel. By even calling them, hey, Jacob, hey, Israel, it should say, look, there will always be a remnant. That is a promise that God has given. There will always be someone on David's throne. There will always be a remnant. That kingdoms will come, kingdoms will go, that people of God will be attacked, but there will always be a faithful remnant. And it's the same way in the New Testament when the writers of the New Testament are writing passages of Scripture, they start off their books with beloved or God's chosen or God's elect to remind ourselves of who we are in light of what's going on in the world and who we are in light of God. Yet, it's interesting though, right now in our culture, if we're not careful, it's very popular right now for Christians that are going through suffering, going through heartache, and there's even songs about this, that start off, which I would argue is the second step. They start off with the second step first by reminding themselves who they are in Christ. Like the example, I'm a child of the king, or I'm a faithful this, or I am that. What I would argue that I believe Isaiah 40 is telling us there's one more step you need to do before that. Before you sit there and talk about being a child of the king, you need to know who the king is in all of his fullness, in all of its depth. Because guess what then happens? If I'm a child of a guy who can take the whole ocean and put it in his hand, who calls the stars out by name, who has said to the stars, come, do this, do that, who looks at the nations and say, you're grasshoppers. If I'm a child of him, wow. But if we don't understand this part, that second step, which is important, it is important to do that, but I believe we need to stop first and feast on who God is before we can understand what does it mean to be a child of God. Because when I'm a child of God, I know that no good thing will he withhold from me. And that means when that wave of destruction is coming over, God is somehow using this together for my good. Because I understand it this way. That this didn't take God by surprise. And only then will we find our true strength in the Lord. Which brings us to our conclusion. Number five, true strength is from the Lord. We see this in verse, actually, I never gave you the answer to the question. Verse 28, the answer to the question is God there. Have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord, the everlasting God, the creators of the heaven and earth, he 
does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. So the answer is, God forgotten? No. All right, have you not read? And then he goes down to find out where true strength can be found. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fail, shall fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. It's interesting that how God even views strength is completely different than we view strength. Because we look at youth and we go, they've got all the strength. All right? And we see, hey, but what does God say? Even those guys are going to get tired. Now, a little side note Yes, the youth have the strength, but they lack wisdom. The elderly have wisdom, but they lack strength. Do you see why God put us together? Not to separate us, but to learn from one another. That's a side note. Just check that off and just remember each stage of the life, life God has put you in is there for a reason, so use it. But back to our passage. What is God telling Israel to do? It's interesting how he speaks here in verse 31. But they who wait, okay, wait a minute. Remember, the nation of Israel right now is in between the waves of destruction. What they should be doing, earthly speaking, is doing what? Getting the wall strong, right? Putting more men, getting, doing more training and all of these other things, getting ready for that next attack that's going to come. But you, what Israel does during this time, the first wave comes in and is taken away. So they put a puppet king in. And you know what Israel does? They try to get some help from allies around them to help when Babylon's going to come through again. And they run to Egypt and they ask the Egyptian people to help them. All right? And all the minor prophets are going, hey, uh, guys, remember the last time we were in Egypt? That's never good. We never run back to Egypt to help them because guess who shows up when Babylon comes there? Where's Egypt? They're really nice in Egypt. But they don't come to help. And then the, the last time, after the nation of Israel has really made Nebuchadnezzar angry, they also run to Egypt for more help. And guess what Egypt does this, the last time? Um, they're not there either. What does he tell the nation of Israel to do? Stop looking for answers on your own. Wait. When you wait, and it's not a passive waiting. It's not kick back up your heels and just close your eyes and fall asleep. No, it's waiting. The way God called Israel is to seek God and rely on God instead of your own strength. God will give Israel renewed strength to rise above their earthly circumstances in faith anchored in God's unchanging word. God has not left them. God has not left you. God is in control. So in the end, this chapter teaches us that we need to first understand that we are nothing and that God is everything. Israel and Isaiah's time needed to know this. God's in control. Not Nebuchadnezzar, not Babylon, not all of these earthly powers. God is in control. And we as future followers of Christ need to understand as well, when we look at the world around us and we see it looks like it is moving faster and faster, it's not just on a slope, it looks like it's dropping like this. What is good, what is beautiful, and what is true is being completely destroyed. And you look around and you go, I don't even know what tomorrow is going to bring from the news, let alone what world my kids are going to grow up in. How do I get them ready? 
The answer is not go get as much rice and beans as you can and ziplock it and Zach vacuum seal it for in your basement. That's not the answer. What the answer is to wait on the Lord and trust his promises and rest in the fact that he will give you the strength at that moment as you rely on him daily. And so in conclusion, we have to ask ourselves, after looking at Isaiah 40, Isaiah 40 is not a self-esteem book. It's a self-assessment book. It's a self-assessment chapter to go, wait a minute, who am I? Who is God? And where do we stand? Because you might ask yourself, at the end, if the nations are a drop in the bucket and the nations are nothing, what does that mean about me? What does that mean about me living in this world? What am I supposed to do this next year? If I am nothing and he is everything, do I just go home, lock my door and say, God, you got it? Pretty clear from Isaiah 40, you got this. Is that what God has called us to do? I would argue no. What God has called us to do is do this. Through faith, those of us who are saved are in Christ. And so our job is to be a trough that is connected to him, pouring out to the world God's love, God's grace, God's mercy, and God's truth. And as that pours out, people see God, not me. And as that plays out, you don't want my love. Because guess what my love is? It is completely corrupted by sin. Yes, I'm redeemed, but it is still. The Bible is very clear. The heart is deceitful above all things. And who? And you know, no one he can even understand how deceitful it is. And so if I'm giving you my love, guess what I'm going to expect? I better expect a, you know, a that a boy or, hey, good job, Tim, or all these other things because my own selfish pride wants to be recognized. But when we understand that we are just a tool in God's hand to bring the light to the world around us, we start to realize that we have been called to point others to him and him alone, not to ourselves. I don't know about you, but if any of you have ever been, had any carpentry work done on your home, nobody ever takes the money and hands it to the tool. No, we hand it to the carpenter. Because what is the tool? Worthless unless it's in the master's hand. And what are we as human beings? Worthless until we are in the master's hands for him to do things about it because in him and through him we live. And that's why it's all pointing back to the glory of God, not to us. In Israel, the same thing. God is working through the nation of Israel for him to get the glory and for him to get the glory alone. So when we grasp the depth of God, who he is, we will truly understand who we are. We will see the depths of his love. And we even sang about it as Pastor Gabe had to sing that first song. If you could even talk about the love of God and you could take the oceans and make them full of ink and put paper all over the sky and every one of you could write and every stalk was on earth was a quill, guess what? We wouldn't even come close to talking about the love of God and we haven't even started his, all the other aspects of his character. When we understand that, it will our hearts will come from a place where we can truly cry, here am I, send me. And that is why only a heart that has been renewed by the word of God can be an obedient heart. That is why we desire here for you at Calvary, for you to understand and truly grasp that when I grasp the who God is and his great love that he has poured out on infinite, small, little, puny little me, then and only then will I truly understand that love obeys. And so the so what? Am I living a life of full dependency on God, trusting in his promises alone, obeying the word, regardless of the evil around me? 
And in the end, what it's all about is bringing glory to God and God alone. Dearly Father, thank you for your truth and your word. Thank you for the way that in your great sovereign plan, you have ordained praise from grass and flowers like us that are here for a moment and gone. And so, dearly Father, may this next year, may we live to the glory and honor of you, living by faith. In your son's name we pray, amen. If you could please stand for the benediction found in Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. And all God's people said, amen. You are dismissed.